Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Lurie. I'm a sex-positive psychotherapist with a specialty in trauma. And my co-host is Sunny Megatron, who is an award-winning sex educator. Our guest today is Melina Williams. Here's a bit about Melina. Melina Williams is an American writer, BDSM educator, actor, and former international Miss Leather. Her viewpoints on issues of kink, leather, and BDSM are frequently sought after by news and information sources like the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Newsweek, Essence, Ebony, and more. She is a frequent guest expert on Dan Savage, Savage Lovecast, Tristan Terramino's Sex Out Loud, and Margaret Cho's Monsters of Talk podcast. She's even spoken about kink at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Melina is also a leather title holder, International Miss Leather 2010, and Miss San Francisco Leather 2009. She's the co-author of two books, The Toy Bag Guide, Taboo Play, and Playing Well with Others, Your Guide to Discovering, Exploring, and Navigating the Kink, Leather, and BDSM Communities. Both collaborations are with fellow educator Lee Harrington. A professional stage performer since the age of five, Melina's credits include singing on the soundtrack for the movie The Wiz. Her short film, Impact, won the Cinekinks Best Experimental Film Award. Melina's latest performance piece is Hyena, a collaboration with her husband, composer George Friedrich Haas. Their BDS relationship is also the subject of a documentary called The Artist and the Pervert. Melina also has appeared on Sex with Sunny Megatron on Showtime in a segment on race play. Now, before we roll our conversation with Melina, we want to give you a content note. This episode discusses BDSM, a consensual practice that encompasses things like bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadomasochism. And we also get into playing with themes within kink that some may find uncomfortable or potentially triggering particularly taboo play centered around overt racism and oppressive racial dynamics. If you're unfamiliar with the role of consent and ethics within BDSM, please listen to our last two episodes before this one. In them, we explored the psychology and motivations behind kink, and they're a great primer for these next two episodes with Melina. Even though various parts of this conversation are psychologically heavy, we balance them out with a casual lightheartedness and lots of laughs. Of course, we encourage you to listen with an open mind. However, if you find conversations about these topics emotionally triggering, hit the fast forward button at any point or skip this episode altogether. Bottom line, what matters most is your well-being. So proceed or don't proceed with this episode in whatever way feels best for you. 
And remember, you can revoke your listening consent at any time. And as always, I want to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy, nor is it a replacement for therapy. Please know this episode has themes of sexual and emotional abuse. If you do become emotionally overwhelmed by its content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or an emotional support hotline like 800-273-TALK, which is 8255. All right, here's our conversation with Melina Williams-Haas. Melina, we are so happy to have you here with us. And before you tell us your story, is there anything you'd like us to know first? (laughs) I would like you to know that it all turns out okay in the end. Yes. <laughs> That's wonderful yes. to hear. Absolutely. Well, with that said, Melina, please tell us your story. I was born in 1969, June 20th, in New York Hospital in New York City. So that makes me a double New Yorker, like my son and my rising <laughs> sign are in New York, which is very strange because so often people assume that New Yorkers come from somewhere else. And I'm like, no, people in New York are fucking and making babies and they give birth <laughs> to them there in New York. Like no one, you don't have to leave to go to the suburbs to give birth. So my parents were very young. My mother got pregnant with me when she was probably 20, which to me seems so, I'm like, oh my God, you're a baby. And my father was 22. He was a couple years older and fresh from the Vietnam War. Later to find out that he was certainly living with PTSD and probably was bipolar, which is a thing, of course, that as an adult, I go to therapy and they're like, well, I can't diagnose your dad. However, From what you've told me, there's a distinct possibility that this is what he was living with because my father, for example, would work his ass off for six months a year and he would work a day job and then grab his saxophone and go out into the street and play in Times Square or in Grand Central Station and make really kind of surprising amounts of money in cash that he would then save and take us on these unbelievable trips. And so his fascination with North Africa, for example, brought us when I was six years old to Morocco for three months. And we had these unbelievable adventures. And then we would come back home and he would go to bed for a couple of months Mm. and do nothing except sleep. And my mother would just sort of say, well, your dad's just really tired. We're just not going to bother him. What was amazing is that I remember at one point deciding that I was going to cheer my dad up and he would never come from under the covers, but I would give him hand puppets and he would play with me. We had a whole like hide and seek game under the blanket and he would pop the little puppets out from different parts of the blanket and I would chase them around the bed. And at the time I thought, okay, great. I cheered up my dad because when my father was not cheerful, he was terrifying. He never hit us. He never threatened us. I was never afraid for myself, but he was someone who broke things. Mm. And I was always Mm. terrified that we were going to be next. Because for example, he had three different saxophones. I had a saxophone. He taught me to play the saxophone. And one day, one of the keys on his saxophone broke and he grabbed a ball-peen hammer and flattened it (gasps) and folded it into three pieces and threw it down the incinerator. And You know, I remember sitting on the couch looking at my saxophone going, well, I hope I don't break a key. I don't know what will happen. There was this distinct fear of destruction 
in our house. And when I was probably about three or four, it was Halloween and my dad had a pumpkin and he was lecturing my mom about something, which was his MO frequently, and tossing the pumpkin from one hand to the other. And I started crying. And he said, why are you crying? And I said, I don't want you to break the pumpkin. I'm afraid you're going to smash it. And I remember mm. the look on his face and he just turned and put it down and, and walked out of the kitchen. And of course, at the time I was like, oh good, Whew, he's not going to break the pumpkin. But I think about someone in his situation and the stresses he was under as an adult, I can look back and think, oh my gosh, how did he even do as well as he did? All things considered. It's interesting just thinking about that. With people with bipolar, especially with men, when they go into the depressive phase, sometimes it shows up as anger and yes. aggression a lot more than with women. Yeah, yeah. And also with mania, sometimes people push through the mania, like, you mm -hmm. know, so much mm -hmm. that when they go into that depression, they go down even lower. So it sounds like your dad was maybe using his mania to do all the things like go to Morocco. Yes, yes. And this is the thing. And then he would flatline further. It was so productive. His mania was productive, but in ways that were so arbitrary. We were living in the projects, in the Johnson projects on 115th and Lexington, we had a two-bedroom apartment, and this was the 70s, so the projects were not some terrifying. It was very mixed. It was all sorts of people in there. And my father, being ex-Navy and being very enamored of the sea, decided he was going to build a boat in wow. our living room. Mm. And so he scavenged wow. lumber from various construction sites and built a 16-foot skiff in the living room. And we took it to the roof, mind you, of the projects, carried it up the stairs <laughs> so that we could melt the tar to, to seal the bottom, then carried it down 10 flights of stairs to put on top of his dad's car, drove out to Sheepshead Bay, <laughs> sailed this thing around, and then my father stored it at his parents' house in Brooklyn, and it rotted in the backyard. It was never used again. Wow. And so much of his life were these profound investments of time, energy, and money into these projects that never went anywhere. And my mother was so resentful of this. She did not want to do any of this travel. And it was always this tug of war between my father wanting to have us see the world and my mother wanting us to leave the projects and find somewhere more beautiful and safer to live. And I'll tell you, in retrospect, I'm so grateful because my father took us to Morocco three times and took us on a tour of all of the capitals of Western Europe wow. one summer. Wow! And I look back on this and I think for a, a kid from the projects to have this opportunity, like even my rich white friends, because I went to a school for quote unquote gifted kids, right? And most of the kids in the school were coming from wealthy families because it's Manhattan, right? Who is living here? except basically for wealthy people. And because of the fact it was a, a school that was very exclusive, of course, parents were having their children specially tutored in order to be able to get into this school. And I managed to make it in without special tutoring because I'm just that fucking amazing. But what that meant was that I would come back from summer vacation and my friends would be like, oh, we were in the Hamptons at our house. I went to riding camp. I went to, you know, wherever. And then I say, oh, yeah, my dad took us to Morocco. We were driving around the desert and we almost drove off a cliff. And then these Bedouin guys came and saved us and <laughs> hauled our car off the edge of the cliff. And then we rode on camels and then they sacrificed a goat so we could have a feast because we were their honored guests. And my classmates are like, how are you doing this? You're poor. Because 
kids have no filter, right? And I was like, well, you know, my dad plays a saxophone on the street. And he actually, one of his jobs was working at a travel agency so that he could have the expertise and insight to book this sort of thing. And I contrast that with my mother, with whom I identified so much more closely as a child. But the reality is, although we look exactly the same clone level similarity, my insides, my engine, my motivator is so much more my father, so much more my father. And his sense of adventure, his brilliance, you know, when we were traveling, he loved Morocco so much, he decided to learn Arabic and French so that he could communicate with everyone there. And so he just learned those languages so he could travel. Like, this is the kind of person that he was, is, I don't know, we're not in touch right now. But it was amazing to me because my parents handled difficulty so much differently. My father was very much confrontational. He was like, take care of business, do things. And my mother was very, very much go along to get along. When I was three years old, I'll never forget this fucking, I was at a sand park on West 86th Street. So all the Manhattan kids are like, oh yeah, the sand park. And I had been playing for a while with a little girl And suddenly the mother rushed over and snatched her up and said something. And then the girl came back crying and picked up all of her bucket and shovel and everything. And she's in tears. And I said, where are you going? And she said, I have to go. My mommy said, I'm not allowed to play with niggers. Oh, wow. And I had never heard the word before. How old were you? Three. And my entire body got cold. And I started, I remember just shaking and running to my mother and telling her what had happened. And here's the fascinating thing. I remember my mother standing up and going and saying something to this woman and all of this other thing. Two years ago, I brought this back up to my mom. I was like, mom, do you remember? She's like, oh yes, it was so terrible. And I said, I was very proud of you though for saying something. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you went over and said something to the other mom. She's like, I did not. I packed you up and took you home because I was so upset that you had been treated so badly. Interesting. And I just sat there and I was like, oh, like, you know, memory is faulty. Like, you're just aware of that. But it was so fascinating that my memory diverged from the reality of thinking my mom was a hero to knowing that my mom had just made the choice to just leave it and go. Your mind gave you a corrective experience. Correct. Yes, it sure did. It sure did. And then I started wondering how much more of this was happening in my memory. As a storyteller, this was shocking to me because the story had been so clear and so real. And I look back and I said, well, I wrote the ending I really wanted, even at age five, six, seven, because that story, I've been telling a story since it happened. Wow. And then I realized that I had been telling the story I made up for 50 years. Mm. which was not devastating, but it was jarring. It was really very jarring. And the reality of that being the first time that I had a conscious knowledge of being less than in someone else's eyes. Because up to that point, I had been the magical special child. I started reading when I was, was three. My dad gave me sort of a grow into birthday present, a Christmas present rather, of the Chronicles of Narnia, like the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, all of those. And I opened it Christmas morning and then I came back the next day and I said, mommy, can I have the next book? And she's like, oh, she must just be going through them. And then I wanted to talk to my parents about them and my mother hadn't read them. So she's like, I guess 
Mo's just making up the story. She's just sitting there pretending to read. And I'm like, no, I read it. Wow. <laughs> and I'm telling her the story. And my mom's like, well, I don't know the story. So my dad gets home and my mom's like, yeah, she said she read these. And my dad's like, well, what did you read? And I told him. And he's like, that's the story. Ooh. And they're looking at me like, ooh, alien child. <laughs> Isn't that like a fifth grade level book, something like that? At least. Yeah, 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 probably. So Within that year, actually, my mother had me at work and I was reading the New York Times at my mom's desk and people were passing by like, oh, look how cute. Because, of course, the Times is as big as you are when you're three. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I had learned the Times fold, so I was reading effectively. And someone came by and said, oh, look how cute. She thinks she can read. And my mother's like, no, she's reading. That's amazing. <laughs> and they're, they're like, ask her. And so my, my never forget my mom's boss leans over this old white guy and he's like, so Mo, what are you reading? And I read off, it was an article about the Watergate situation. And at this point, like now three or four people are gathered around my mother's desk and they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> and so one of them, because white men will white man regardless, is like, yeah, but does she know what she's reading? <gasps> wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so my mom says, why don't you ask her? And so he said, okay, Mo. So he points to a paragraph and he goes, so you just read this. That's amazing. What does it mean? And I look up and I dead eye him and I'm like, it means... President Nixon is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, shit. Like, like, no. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? And a friend of my mom said, you should have her tested. There's a school for gifted kids. There's no tuition, but you have to take a test to get in. If you get in, you get a free ride for 12 years. And my mom's like, uh, okay, sure. So that was how I wound up in a school for gifted children. I also, around that time, got into performing in film and TV. My dad took us to see Hair, the revival, when I was about four, which is totally appropriate. <laughs> and at the end, when everyone's naked and dancing around and we're leaving the theater and I said, this is what I'm going to do, mom, dad, I'm going to be an actor. And they were like, okay, sure, great. And like three years later, I actually was. Like, I was a member of SAG and AFTRA and I had an agent and I was doing all of those things because that's who the fuck I was. What was very odd and very jarring was that I started to make other friends who were kids who were actors, but they weren't poor. And mm. their earnings mm. were not utilized to keep the family alive and afloat. And so while it would have been really delightful for me to be able to have had my money set aside, it was not because of my parents' socioeconomic situation, because my parents kept separating and getting back together, because of our financial vulnerability. By the time I was 13 or 14 and my youthful career had petered out and I moved to theater because zits, pimples, awkward teenage years, you're not getting as much work as the cute black kid. And I was accepted early to NYU undergrad, which was spectacular. And I had my freshman year and it was amazing. And I was on a substantial amount of scholarships because this was a time when affirmative action had finally hit the pipeline. And so all of my tuition was covered by three different affirmative action grant programs. Well, the Reagan administration rolled those back. And so sophomore year, spring semester, I opened my financial aid package and saw a lot of zeros. Oh, no. And I rushed to the financial aid office and I said, well, what happened? And they're like, those programs have been cut. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? I don't have $18,000. And 
are there any emergency funds? And they're like, yeah, those are gone. Wow. <laughs> those are gone. So I had to drop out of school. And the reality of, first of all, politics and the president and all of those things directly impact your life real time had never sunk in for me until that moment because there was always a, a barrier between me and the government, right? So now I'm just juxtaposing. At age three, you got hit in the face with racism, and now you're getting hit in the face with, with class, yeah, yeah. you know, it was social class. And, you know, here we are juxtaposing that again from the reality that you're this brilliant genius child. That must have been such a mindfuck for you to be like, I know I'm gifted. I know I have all this to offer. And yet racism, classism are blocking me for no logical reason. It's a lesson that everyone should learn. It breaks my heart to know that the lesson has to be learned on our bodies. Yeah. And the reality of the depth of depravity of this country hit me full in the face real time at age 19. Right. Yeah. And I think that's something that, you know, I'm always talking about this on the podcast. It's like therapists, they understand things from, you know, in terms of did your dad beat you, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think a lot of therapists understand how racism class trickles down and manifests in very real trauma, you know, and that we need to be looking through that lens. The trauma-informed therapy, if it doesn't include the trauma of being insert minority here, in America, then I have nothing to do or say with that. It's useless to me. Right. It's useless to me because the depth of that trauma is so unilateral. There's no part of my life that escapes that. And I have to cut myself some slack, which I'm shit at doing. <laughs> absolutely miserable because I assume I should be able to solve anything because I have been told it has been drilled into me since I'm six years old that you are you. And they're pointing to all of us, my classmates, me. We are the future. We are the ones that are going to change the world. Our intelligence, our curiosity, our refusal to take things at face value, yada, yada. And then I'm like, oh, all of those things can be true. But if you're poor, you are vulnerable to the ebb and flow and whim and whimsy of wealthy white people who don't really care about you. And whether or not there's an organized, underground, secret coven of, well, I don't use this coven, I don't want to like diss the witches, underground, <laughs> what can you say? Like, I don't know, clusterfuck? Secret, so <laughs> secret society of some evilness? Some secret society of evilness? Some fucking, <laughs> what was it? Like Cobra, like Cobra Command? <laughs> like, white guy Cobra or whatever G.I. Joe was fighting, like those guys? They are completely dedicated to making sure that they have a country of workers and drones and people who are not there to question them. Right. Or to stand up and say, wow, the status quo sucks. We want to change that. Yeah, I just call it dominator culture and it shows up with white supremacy and all these other things, you know? Exactly. And so much of that was, was so abstract until it hit me personally in the face. And I looked around and, and I'm looking at my classmates and they're all in school and they're all doing what they want to do and fulfilling their destiny. And I'm thinking, wow, I have wanted to go to this school my entire life. I got in by the end of 11th grade, by like, not even the end, by spring of 11th grade, I knew where I was going to college. I had it locked in and all of that was just pulled from underneath me. And then you're like, well, okay, what do I do now? And the reality of the vulnerability of being a poor American like really started to erode my self-esteem, my, my feeling of who I was. And that disruption in my life plan 
uh, I'm not sure that I could say I ever recovered from it. It certainly altered the entire course of the rest of my life. And to this day, there's a smoky bitterness in my mouth over this incident. And I would be dishonest if I didn't say that part of that bitterness is that my parents were not better equipped to give me the education and the life path and all of those things that that I wanted, that I needed, that the earth deserved because I should be that person on the planet. I don't know. It was very, very difficult to be in that position of just not knowing what I was going to do or where I was going to go and feeling so bereft and so lost. And that shook me loose from my path of going to college. Uh, in my freshman year, I had actually met a guy who I dated for a bit, then we broke up. He was a senior, so I assumed he would be gone the next year. But hilariously, after I had dropped out of NYU, I then landed on my feet and was lucky enough to get a job working at the New York Shakespeare Festival. And so I was still working in theater, which was awesome. It wasn't quite my path, but I was like at least in there, you know, and ran into this guy I had dated at NYU and he had graduated and was in New York trying to make it as a filmmaker. We wound up picking up where we left off, dating again, and then moving to Los Angeles, where our relationship... uh <laughs> slowly burned, burned down to a stump. It was, oh my God, it was, here's the thing. Our relationship was terrible. We were absolutely miserable for each other. But in the five years we were together, which I feel like when you're that young, the relationship years should be counted like dog years so, or like <laughs> <Yeah>. cat years. <laughs> like a five-year relationship for a 19-year-old should be like a 30-year marriage. Like that's like, I feel like <laughs> yeah. it, it parses out to that, like when you're so young. But the reality was the mistakes and the horror and the bitterness and the fighting and the like, the head-butting that we did taught me so much about what I did not ever want in a relationship. And I can honestly and proudly say I did not make those mistakes again. And one of the reasons I gravitated towards kink relationships once that came into my life was that I love the idea of a structure that meant that I was required to take three deep breaths and not scream at my partner and not throw <laughs> knives at their head. And they were required to treat me in a way that did not generate that type of behavior. So I hilariously, you know, after my boyfriend and I were in Los Angeles, we were there for a couple years, then we broke up. And then I, I met a guy, as frequently happens when people are like, so how, what's your story of getting into kink? I'm like, ah, well, let me tell you, there was a British guy, he had an accent and an amazing butt. And, <laughs> you know, we hooked up at this bar, and I'm going to tell the very short version of this, but... Long story short, he was a musician and was in town on tour with some big artist, and I'm not really caring about that, but I said, well, can I come see you perform? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm not sure what we're performing. And we're at this bar with a bunch of other guys. There's a bunch of Irish guys, a bunch of British guys. This dude takes out this huge binder, and he's like, oh, we're going to be at the, let's see, I think we're at the LA Coliseum. I'm like, <laughs> who the fuck are you touring with that you're playing at the Coliseum? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm back up for Van Morrison. And I'm like, Whoa. oh, well, <gasps> that's not insignificant. <laughs> no. So, yeah. So he's like, come see me play. I'm like, that's great. The next night we had a date. We were going to go and like have hot sex in the lobby of the hotel. He turns to me and it's like, oh, great. Look, my boss is here. I can introduce you to him. I turn around. I'm like, well, there's fucking Van Morrison. <laughs> so... So we go back to the hotel room. So now I'm pounding like $500 Irish whiskey with Van Morrison. 
and his handler, who's Siobhan McGowan, who's Shane McGowan, you know, from the Pogues, his mm-hmm. little sister. She's also a singer. She's hanging out with us. We're getting wasted. We're hanging out. I walk into the bathroom to pee. I come out of the bathroom. This guy, who I just met, like, the night before, grabs me by the neck, pulls me into the bedroom, kicks shut the door, throws me up against the wall. He's got his belt, like, coming from off of his pants. And I'm like, what's going to happen now? <laughs> what happens now? I don't ever know. So, like, then the belt is around my neck. I'm on the bed. I'm getting my ass beaten. And I'm like, okay, this is... Huh, let's see. Yeah, this is very much like an assault because I'm getting hit, getting pushed around. I'm getting called bad names. My pussy is super wet. So let's just ride this one out. Let's just see. <laughs> where, let's just see where this goes. There's like this outside observer, like Molina watching the yeah, Molina yeah, yeah. show. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'm in a hotel, right? Like, all I need to do is just get away from him, and I'm safe. So. There's ass beating, there's freaky sex, there's all this shit. And finally he gets up to go get a cigarette and he comes running back in. He's like, Van and Shavon are still out there. And I'm like, oh my God, they just sat there while we were fucking for the past 45 minutes? That's awkward. That's awkward. So the next morning I wake up and I'm like, oh, I need to get him some coffee. I should get his breakfast. Oh, he's out of cigarettes. He mentioned that his suit was downstairs with the concierge. I should go pick it up. And not even realizing anything except this man has special magic powers (laughs) and I will follow him to the end of the earth. And it doesn't matter that he has a girlfriend and lives in another country. This is it. This is the guy for me. And had you ever fallen into that pattern before at all? Was this the first time? Yes. I had done kinky sex. My high school boyfriend and I were quite experimental. (laughs) (laughs) And had certainly tied each other up and spanked each other and done all kinds of shit. But at no point had anyone been emotionally and sexually aggressive in that way. And I had certainly never reflexively decided that what I needed to do was everything to make their life awesome as possibly could. Now, am I a pleaser? Absolutely. Am I hypervigilant because of my father? 100%. So all of those things sort of leaned into me wanting to just be with this guy and make his life awesome and everything else. So I basically dropped my entire life and followed him for the next two weeks through the LA tour. Then there was a leg up in San Francisco. So I followed it up to San Francisco. And when he went back to London... I was just basically living my life until the day we could be together again. Isn't it interesting how we eroticize what scares us? Yep. And it didn't occur to me until after we started having freaky phone sex that suddenly started drifting into very dark waters (laughs) that I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to hell. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely going to hell. All of my ancestors are up there right now going, mm-mm, mm-mm, this child is broke. She broke, y'all. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> snatch her up because she is out here jerking off to some, like, slavey fantasy with some colonizer. <laughs> like the ultimate colonizer, right? Like a British person. Right. Right. And as shit just got darker and darker, I was terrified and also more turned on than I ever Like, this was just devastating and incredibly hot. And so I started writing these pornographic letters to him. 
And after three of them of my fantasy, I'm like, oh, well, you know, what if, let us just what if. And I had at the time been reading a lot of Victorian porn because the Victorians had some amazing pornography. There's a collection, I believe, called The Pearl, and I highly recommend this. If you want to know how to write about fucking without ever using the word dick, pussy, or fuck, Mm -hmm. these are the people you want to follow because that shit is amazing suddenly it's the throbbing engine suddenly it's her dewey portal and you're like oh dewey portals i like that (laughs) so you know (laughs) so i started writing this terrible and amazing like tale i basically was like what if i were a slave what if i was on a plantation what if and i made this guy the sort of central character in this fantasy of the innocent slave girl being increasingly horribly violated by her master's cousin who was a admiral of the British Royal Navy. And this was before the revolution. And oh my God, it's hot as hell. (laughs) And of course, I immediately felt like a horrible individual. So in order to punish myself, I decided I was going to show this to someone other than my little British friend who was obviously just a sick cisgender white man. And of course he loved it because who wouldn't? They're fucking monsters. And there was a woman I was dating at the time. And I was like, okay, Mary, I showed it to her. And she's like, this is amazing. You should publish this. I'm like, you're fucked up. Okay, next. (laughs) (laughs) You're a mess. It's like all white women just need to just chill. What the hell? And so two days later, I get a call from her father, who I'd met and spent time with. And he said, I need to tell you, Mary showed me your writing. And I just, my heart got cold. And I was like, you why would you show your dad porn? Why wow. would you be like, hey, that's like, is this how white people roll? They're just like, hey, mom, dad, here's some porn. <laughs> and I was like, what the? And he started explaining to me the historic significance <laughs> of the work that I was doing. And he's a professor of English, mind you, retired English professor. And I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? What the fuck? Wow. And again, I was like, angry. And so what I did was I said, you know what, I'm going to finally find the person who's going to tell me that I'm a mess and fucked up because I really actually wanted that rejection and that punishment. I craved it because I wanted to have agreement with the voice in my head that was telling me that I was sick and that this was really bad and wrong. And so I had a friend who was a black lesbian separatist, like living on the land, anti-pornography, you know, sister. And I took her aside at work one day and I was like, okay, I need to tell you, I'm processing some shit. I've been doing some writing and I explained to her what was happening. And I said, I just, I need some feedback. I need a head check. And I know this might be really difficult for you to read. So I, yeah. and she's like, just give it to me. If it, <laughs> she's like, I've read horrible shit. I know. And I was like, oh God. And I'm literally sitting at home, like rocking back and forth. And at like 2 a.m., my phone rings. And she's like, girl, you need to get out of my head. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, this shit is hot as fuck. (laughs) And I said, you don't think it's really fucked up? She's like, I ain't said it wasn't fucked up. It's fucked up. This is the most fucked up shit I've seen. And it's hot. Mm -hmm. And like, at that moment, it was literally like the clouds parted. Wow. And I was like, oh, 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 yes, it is fucked up and it's hot. And I realized that by pouring my guts out almost literally to this person and having her pour her guts back to me, you know, for someone with her belief system 
to be able to see what I had written and see the eroticism in the wrongness was kind of amazing. And we just, we had a conversation until sun, we were a mess at work the next day. We were on the phone till the sun came up talking about how you could be a black descendant of chattel slaves and what the difference was between that and what I was talking about and what I was doing. And I started really thinking about that. And it really led me to the point of saying, well, if I feel like this, I can't be the only one. It's a statistical impossibility that I'm the only Black woman who has these fantasies. Right. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. That's why I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about, you know, how you've had corrective experiences. And here you are, you're on some level understanding more and more that you're kinky. Yeah. You know, you haven't used that word yet. No, because it hadn't coalesced. Yeah, yeah. But it's one of those things where it seems like you're getting near, if not already, having a corrective experience on two levels, you know, like the level of you and your dad and the societal level of racism, you know, like enslavement and all that. It's interesting that Hmm. two types of corrective experiences are potentially happening at once. I don't fuck around. Maybe. <laughs> you are always gifted. <laughs> I was just like, I got a multitask. I'm like, I only got one life to live. I got a shit ton of shit to do. I better get my shit together pronto so that I can move on to the next fucking thing. And what was fascinating was that at that time, did I have an awareness of kink as a lifestyle? Absolutely. However, my exposure had been seeing gay white men in the bars and the piers downtown engaged in what I knew to be kinky stuff. And I knew that white people were swingers and white people also did the spanking, but I hadn't ever, first of all, anticipated that that was a group of people doing it all together. I didn't know that there was an entire subculture that was outside of the gay men scene. And so I kept writing my porn to satisfy myself because, of, again, this was 1993-ish. And so I did not yet have access to any other people. I just didn't know how to find those folks. So I just kept my own fantasy life active until about 1995 when I was dating. I had a serial dating situation where I dated a couple of rocket scientists, actual rocket scientists. They were working for NASA JPL. And (laughs) one of them hooked me up with the internet, but it wasn't the internet at that point. It was literally messaging boards and chat rooms. But it had been created basically for these guys. And after science, the second thing that they did with it was sex. And so there were all of these bulletin boards where you could go and chat about different sex topics. And I found those and I said, okay, well, there's other people doing this, so maybe I can do it too. And I was in... LA for a few more years. And I sort of just was researching this and trying to figure out how I could do it in my life and if I even wanted to. By the time I moved to the Bay Area and decided, okay, yeah, I kind of do want to figure out my kink life. I worked up the nerve to go to a munch and munches are non-sexual gatherings of kinky people. It's like at any restaurant, it's just a bunch of kinky people saying we're going to be here second Thursday of the month at eight o'clock. And worked up the nerve to go there and arrived. And I'm like, yay, now I'm in the kink community. Here I am. And I'm the only Black woman I've seen in a year. 
Oh, my. And it was very disconcerting in some ways. In some other ways, I'm used to working in white spaces, so that part didn't bother me. But worrying about being fetishized non-consensually, concern about my my secret fetish because I still felt really nervous about sharing that with other folks, and it was not something I was going to turn to the next white person and fetishize. And then thankfully and miraculously, someone handed me a copy of one of the, like, at the time, maybe a dozen books on kink and leather that existed. And it's To Love, To Serve, To Obey, written by a woman named Viola Johnson, who is an African-American person and was at the time, like, cast as, like, one of the matriarchs of leather. And I'm like, wait a second. Here's a woman who's Black, who calls herself a slave, like, outright, who wears a collar and everything else, and is, like, one of the respected matriarchs of the community? It's like, okay, well, maybe there is a place for me then. Maybe I can do this. And that was the first moment that I felt like I could sort of put down a piece of my armor and try to actually make myself a home among these people. As it turned out, of course, no place is safe from bigotry, racism, and bullshit. And the moment I started opening up and talking about the fact that I couldn't see a way around playing with racial identity, race, and all that comes along with that in my BDSM, that became really fucking problematic for a lot of people and remains so to this day, and justifiably so, right? I'm not out here saying that playing with your racial identity in King and BDSM is something everyone should do, and I actually tend to recommend against people doing those sorts of scenes, but the reality for me was I had a need. There was something I really needed to get. And I felt as though, not that I could cure myself or any of those things, but I said that there's some truth that I'm dead set curious about. And one of the things that's fascinating about being a submissive or a bottom or identifying as a slave or a masochist in BDSM is that your vulnerability is not just present for you, it's also present for everyone around you, everyone who watches your scene, everyone who knows who you are. You are voluntarily exposing the soft underbelly. And that is sort of the core of what we do. And you add to that that I'm one of a handful of Black women trying to navigate this scene with, well, in the scene, exclusively white partners, Interestingly, because of the handful of African-American men that I met in the scene, exactly zero percentage of them were interested in me. And they, however, were very fine with criticizing my submitting to a white man, even while they were surrounded by three to five white women who were kneeling at their feet. Because, of course, that's okay, because they're not playing into the dominant paradigm of Black submission, right? So it's fine for them to do that, but it's not okay for you as a Black person to be submissive. So even my organic identification as someone who wanted to submit put me into a poor standing within the leather community. So I had to sort of struggle with that uphill battle, and it's still an issue for me. It's still very, very tender. So... I'd like to pause you right here and just like look at some of this stuff. So I think a lot of times when the BDSM community tries to explain BDSM 
to the general population, they have a tendency to show charts like this is abuse and this is BDSM and this is the difference. When in reality, I don't know if it's that delineated. I think, you know, especially when you're having kind of a healing journey, like this was erotic and hot to you, but it also sounded like it was a healing journey. And I'm guessing it was a lot more messy than two clean charts where this is abuse and this is BDSM. I'm guessing sometimes you had partners that re-traumatized you. Oh, yes. And other times you had partners that were healing to you and that it wasn't clean like that, you know? It's never going to be. Yeah. And then while you're doing this journey, you're having people tell you that you don't get to have this, which is a bit of a mind fuck because it's basically saying you don't have a certain type of freedom. Mm-hmm. Which enslavement is about taking away your freedom. This is the mind fuck of it. Yes. Where it's like, you should have the freedom to be whatever type of sexuality you are. And you just happen to be a black woman who's also submissive. When I came out to my mom, I had to explain this to her. And she legitimately and curiously and sort of desperately said, how can you do these things with so much of the imagery being about the tools that were used to oppress us? And I say, and that's a great question, mom. And the thing is, the only core difference is <laughs> it's only consent. It's only that I have chosen this. I was not born into it with no agency. I call the shots and I say this is what I want and I say when it stops. And our ancestors had none of that. And the reality is that freedom is about choice. And if my choice is that I choose to explore this aspect of my sexuality, and then I say, I'm not going to because I'm Black, that is racist. That is the core of what racism is, that you are or are not allowed to do or say or be or exist or not exist because of your race or ethnic heritage. Right. And to understand that that is the true reality and whether or not you like it, you don't have to like it, but it has to be my journey and it has to be my exploration. And the scenes that I have done, and there's a handful, people think I'm out there doing this shit every weekend. I am not. I do not have to leave the fingers on my hand to count the numbers of scenes that I have done that were intentional two-purpose scenes around race. And of those scenes... Most of them have been demos that I have done for the purpose of education. Three of them have been scenes that I did personally for my own edification. The following story has been cut due to content that may be triggering to some listeners. To summarize, Melina recounts a BDSM scene that shifted to abuse due to the Dom's horrible judgment and choices. The experience was so traumatizing that she dissociated and hoped for her own death. If you feel that you have PTSD due to experiences that you initially thought were BDSM, but in hindsight, you realize that the experiences were abusive or that your scene partner was a bigot, please get help. A kink-aware therapist who also knows EMDR or somatic psychotherapy is an ideal person to help you heal. For those interested in hearing the details of this specific experience, Melina tells the story in full on The Risk Podcast in episode 442, titled Slave. One of those was so deeply traumatic that the outcome of it, because long story short, I was in a dissociative state and the person did not stop the scene, even though they realized that there was something wrong, but they assumed I would safe word if it was really wrong. Right. 
And the thing is that if you're in a dissociative state, you can't safe word. Wow. I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I think there's a lot of doms who do not know the difference between dissociation and subspace. I feel like people that do BDSM, they should have a basic knowledge of trauma. And I don't think many people do. No, I don't think they understand even the basics of it. And they, you know, and I hear it in my practice all the time. I've had doms that are very high up in the ranks, you know, pretty famous doms say, oh, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. And I'm like, it happens all the time. And I know because I have clients that come in that are like, I thought I had a good dom. And now I have PTSD. And please help me with this. Oh, gosh. Please help me heal. And I do EMDR to try and help them heal. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I consider that to be one of my formative difficult experiences. And I actually don't regret that it happened because I learned about myself that dissociation is a thing and you don't have to have a diagnosis to dissociate. Right. You don't have to have had a specific trauma that you believe will trigger my idea of what dissociation meant. I had only heard about it from people who had had previous trauma that they had dissociated during, like childhood abuse, for example. I was not aware that you could out of quote unquote nowhere, dissociate. Like I just had no fucking idea. And so what I tell people is I'm like, look, you can build in ways to safeguard against this. You can look for these things. If you make eye contact with someone and you don't make eye contact with them while you're looking into their eyes, mm -hmm. stop the scene, just step back. But what was fascinating is that after that scene, I was disappointed in myself. I was absolutely ashamed that I gave up. I felt like I should have Harriet tubman my way out of there and roundhouse kicked him in the face and been like, fuck you, you fucking cracker-ass buckra, and kept running. And the idea that I was not the quote-unquote proverbial image of the strong black woman bothered me. So this repeats kind of what happened with your mom when you were three. Mm-hmm. And for years, I was like, why did you give up? Why? What the what? And I had very little compassion for myself. And I will fast forward to five months ago. I was having a conversation with my mom about life and whatever shit. And our relationship has gone back and forth. We have had many years where we were, I was just basically calling her to tell her I was not dead. And, and so our relationship is on the mend and doing beautifully. And I have such a great deal of respect for her. And we were talking about our past. And she said, did I ever tell you about the situation with my name when I was in school? And I was like, no, what are you? And so she relayed to me that when she was in the fourth grade, she was learning cursive. And her name is Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N. And her teacher looks at her name and says, oh, Marion, your name is spelled with an A. And my mom says, no, it's Marion. That's how you spell it. And her teacher says, well, no, that's the way that boys spell Marion. Your name is M-A-R-I-A-N because you're a girl. Now, here's the thing. No. <laughs> Allow me to explain. No. And so I'm like, well, Ma, did you tell her to fuck off? Pardon my French. And she's like, no, because the teacher said that if I didn't spell it that way, then I would get an F. And I was like, oh, well, that's... Oh, my goodness. What are you going to say to like a... You know, and I, I took a deep breath because I was like, she was not going to a school for gifted kids. This was 1950-something, right? So she said, well, I wrote, spelled it that way. And then I went home and I told my mom what happened. And I was like, oh, my God. She must have. I was like, what did she say? I'm like just waiting for the, like, lightning and thunder. And my mother says, well, 
my mom looked at it and said, well, she's a teacher. She must know what she's talking about. Just spell it that way. But this is the difference between wealthy families and privileged families versus kids that come from families that aren't privileged. Like, there's books on this and studies on this that show that when you come from a privileged family, parents just march in and are like, how dare you treat my child this way? But if you're from a poor family or or a a family that's just trying to survive, Mm -hmm. you have a tendency to just try and be under the radar. And again, I'm blown away. And I'm like, ma, how? How? How the... My mother said, look, my mother was raised by sharecroppers who were raised by slaves. And you did what you had to do to get along. And I had to sit with that. And I said, oh, I'm kind of an asshole. And I realized I had been kind of an asshole to myself in the moment of this scene. I said, you know, that very real desire for death over any more torture? That was me tapping into my DNA. That was me seeing what my ancestors went through was that hopelessness. Is it close to anything like that? No. Do I believe that trauma carried through DNA can be reactivated? I do. Yes. And I do believe that part of what happened to me in that scene during that dissociation was me understanding what it feels like to not have any hope. That almost sounds like a spiritual experience, you know, in that insight moment. The insight moment sounds like a spiritual experience. I was able to forgive myself for being vulnerable, and I was able to get a step closer to the part of my ancestry that is, I'm like, you don't survive what my family obviously survived because I exist, so obviously, yeah, Everyone does not survive that by being the ones who are leading the slave uprisings. (laughs) Sometimes people just do what they need to fucking do to get through the day. And trying to cut myself some slack on that, still working on it. But the real vulnerability, seeing how generationally and seeing how my own mother was forced to give up her own name until she graduated high school. Wow. Wow is stunning to me. So what has been, to me, most recently fascinating is the fact that my continued vulnerability and openness about my shit is part of my service to the world. And as a submissive person, I realize that I've always been submissive and always been a pleaser and always seen myself valuable through what I can do for other people. And as a child actor, for example, so much of that was about getting the job. And if I got the job, then that meant that I could earn some money and that maybe next month we would not be so close to the bone when it came to paying the rent. And so that was a vital aspect of who I was. And that was how I proved that I was worthy and doing enough to justify my existence. And The thing for me about kink and submission is that in my submissive relationships, my vulnerability is acknowledged, and it's front and center, and it's valued. And if it isn't valued in front and center, it's my job to speak up and say, you are not valuing me. This is a problem. What are we going to do to address that? And that shift has been monumental in my self-esteem. And it's ironic to say, yeah, no, being a slave has taught me my self-worth in ways that nothing else in my life has. 
for people that don't understand, can you just explain the difference between, you know, the past history of people being enslaved? And I know you said the difference is consent, but you can you just revisit mm-hmm. the difference between you using the word slave now versus the history of being enslaved? The reality is chattel slaves were people who were brought to a country where their skin would permanently mark them as an underclass. The slave trade in the Americas, the triangle trade, all of these things that were bringing enslaved people from their home to not home and making sure that that underclass would never be able to truly ever integrate You know, people like to say, oh, well, the Irish were slaves. A, they were not. B, (laughs) the (laughs) Irish can lose an accent and blend in. There is nothing I can do that will not let me be known as a Black person except to only do business with you by phone. And that's only because I have code-switching privilege. So I can Karen the fuck out of someone on the phone if I choose to do so. (laughs) As someone who is a descendant of chattel slaves and someone who is living in the permanent underclass, those are things over which I have no choice. I cannot avoid that. I cannot stop that. I cannot safe word out of my blackness as an American person. No one who was born into slavery could ever nope out of that situation and stop what's happening. The whole core of kink and BDSM and what we are doing is that it is consensual, and mutually beneficial for all parties. What that benefit is, you can choose. The benefit might be sensation. The benefit might be psychological support. The benefit might just be hot sex. But whatever it is, I am fully capable, encouraged, and desirous of experiencing those things on my terms, on my own time, and as I see fit. And that has absolutely nothing to do with being a piece of property, regardless of my choice. It's like the difference between someone saying, you know what, I love housework, I love mopping the floors, and someone saying, bitch, get in the kitchen and make me a sandwich. The assumption is that because you are female, that that is your job and that is your place. As a kinky person, I may invent myself as I choose going into the community. If I wake up tomorrow and I say, I am not a slave anymore, I'm a dominant, kneel at my feet, there will be a line out the door. (laughs) And no one can stop me. And there's no laws against it. And no one's going to come back and say, I'm sorry, Mo. (laughs) We're going to capture you and take you back. You can't be a dom. You have to be a slave because you are a slave and that's that's who you are. And that's the be all and end all. Right, And so those freedoms to choose and to shift gears and to change direction at any time is the core difference between chattel slavery as it was practiced and current day trafficked slavery, right? Because it still exists. Let us not pretend it does not. But those people who are trafficked cannot wake up one morning and go, you know what? How about I spank you today? How about you wear the collar today? How about you do the involuntary sex work today? How about you get assaulted by people you don't want to even have touching you? How about that? And they're like, okay, sure. That seems fair. Let's switch. Those are 180 degrees from each other. And it's the difference between you turning to your beloved partner and saying, hey, could you tie me up and pretend to be like the pirate king (laughs) who's abducted me and is now going to take me against my wishes and someone breaking into your house and tie you up and sexually assaulting you? 
One thing is a thing that probably everyone has done to some extent in some variation, and the other is a thing everyone hopes will never happen to them. Right. So hopefully that that <laughs> hopefully that clarifies. Thank you. Yeah, that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> that's helpful. Thank you. <laughs> and the reality is that the more I talk about the hard shit, the more I talk about how weird and difficult it is to be an African American woman who is living this submissive lifestyle, the more I talk about my vulnerabilities around being a recovering alcoholic, the more I reveal about the stuff that seems so dark and stinky and ugly, the more people come to me with the, oh my God, I get it, or wow, me too. And there's so many people who aren't submissive, aren't into BDSM, but identify with the sensation of wanting to be held and safe and protected and cherished and loved, or to be the protector and holder of someone. When you break it down to those terms, people start to get it. Yeah. And you've talked about how you started out, there was a period in your life where you were in an addict, and you kind of mentioned earlier the way you felt about yourself as an addict. How do you feel about yourself now at this point in your life? I am a walking goddamn miracle. <laughs> Holy shit. I will tell you, we could do a whole other show about my recovery <laughs> going forward because I was like, oh, did I tell you about the hyena I met when I was getting sober? That was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I had my alcoholism basically manifest in my first night in the rehab when I was on all kinds of drugs and anti-seizure medications because they were afraid I was probably going to die. And this hyena who popped out of the floor and was like, hey, what's up? My name is Bubbles. Nice to meet you. We should leave. We should go. I don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. Let's just go grab a pint of whiskey and sit in Golden Gate Park. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> this is kind of like a vision you saw. It was a creature that manifested. At the time, I did not feel like it was a vision. Now, I have spoken since then to two neuroscientists who I told this whole situation, like, so I saw them like, okay, yeah, DTs. And I'm like, yeah, but do DTs keep talking to you like two weeks, a month later? And they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I assumed I had had a psychotic break. The therapist in the rehab was like, you know, your recovery, there's early recovery, there's a lot of shit going on. And I'm like, I'm still talking to this demon thing. Can you help me, please? And then when I, after my 30-day stint, I talked to a couple of different therapists, and I was basically looking for someone to say, yeah, you need antipsychotic medication so that you can get rid of this because that shouldn't be happening. What's wrong with you? And the therapist I spoke to, one of them was like, oh, really interesting because there are forms of gestalt therapy where you do exactly what you've done, which is break out a part of yourself, address it, cope with it, and then reintegrate. And I was like, I'm not reintegrating a stinky hyena. You're fucking nuts. I don't like <laughs> That's not coming back. And so I spent the next year visualizing myself smashing this creature's head open with lead pipes and building fences around my guts to try to keep her out. So I was like, wow, I'm sober, but now I've lost my mind. And I don't know what to do. And no therapist will take me seriously. <laughs> <laughs> And they literally, like, my therapist was just like, keep having these conversations. They're actually helpful for you. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> and so 
About a year or so into this, I had gone back home to New York. I was on the Crosstown bus having these conversations with this imaginary monster. And I finally was like, look, how do I get rid of you? What can I do to not have this crawling sensation of ugliness? And her response was, I want you to love me. Right. And I was like, oh, too bad. How sad for you. All right. <laughs> now we're just going to be, I guess that we're just at an impasse because that's not fucking happening. And so what I did at that point was I said, okay, I need to understand why I picked this animal. Like what part of me chose this animal that I have no affinity with, nobody does, because they're smelly scavengers who steal lion's food. And, you know, I've seen the Lion King. I know the drill. And so I started studying them and I was like, wow, they're matriarchal. The lowest tier, a newborn hyena pup, if it's female, has more status than the most senior male hyena. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I was like, also hyenas have dicks. Everyone has a dick. Wow. They all have what looks like a penis. They all get erect. And basically what might be sort of the scrotum slash labia is this fused sort of sac. And then in order to show submission, they get erect. The head hyena is the one who's flaccid. She's the one who's like, yes, yes, sniff my flaccid dick. And they all come <laughs> around and they're like, yes, we bow before your flaccid penis with our erect, you know, junk. And they're not scavengers. Well, they do scavenge, but everyone does. But they're amazing predators. And I'm learning all this. And I'm like, okay, well, hyenas can eat bones like they gather. So I'm trying to figure out how to forge an alliance with this creature that I still just consider to be evil and terrible. And I was invited to do a storytelling event. And the woman said, okay, pitch me something. What do you have that's really burning for you right now? And in my voice, I heard this, well, don't talk about the hyena thing. <laughs> don't do that. And I was like, oh, fuck. I was like, oh, okay, so, and I'm stuttering out this pitch, and the woman immediately says, oh, oh, is this a recovery story? Yeah, we don't do those. And then I was like, why not? My recovery story is awesome. And she's explaining how, like, everyone, in, you know, comes here with their AA share and things, whatever. And I was like, do their AA shares have talking hyenas? <laughs> and she said, uh, no. <laughs> so I told her about and she's like okay yeah we need to hear this so I gave a sort of you know I did I think I had seven minutes to tell the story for a porch light storytelling that I think it was on NPR when I walk off stage there is a line of people it wound up being about 80 people who came up to me as I'm dizzy and nauseous because I'm so terrified that I just talked about the horrors of my alcoholism the psychotic nature of talking to an imaginary demon and then trying to figure out how to make friends with it. <laughs> and this woman comes up to me, throws her arms around me. She's crying. She's like, my sister died. She's like, I'm so glad you made it. You know, the next person's like, I'm in recovery. Thank you. He's like, I feel like I know my demon too. And the next person's like, I'm not an alcoholic, but my depression is that ugly, smelly. And the next person's like, my anxiety. And then someone else is like, my mother, I hear her voice is that demon. And so many people, people who were not alcoholics, found a way in to understanding my struggle and applied it to themselves. And I was like, this is the work. Wow. This is the work. I have to tell people about this as much as I'm absolutely ashamed and horrified. I don't want to stand in front of a room full of 500 people and talk about being too drunk to get up to piss. 
and just laying there on like a pissy bed because I was too fucked up to get up and take care of my own bodily functions. I don't want to talk about that. Right. But I have to because we all need to hear about the ugliness that we're carrying. And that vulnerability gave me the ability to talk to other people. I got an email a year later from someone who had heard the, a repeat of the podcast and had one of those, they call them NPR moments when you get to the store, you're listening to NPR and you just kill the ignition and sit there listening to the rest of the story yes, before yes. you walk into the store, right? <laughs> And this man wrote to me and he said, I had an NPR moment listening to you talk about your hyena. And I was sitting in front. I'm sorry. He said, I was sitting in front of a liquor store and I was about to go in and I had been sober for a month. And he said, and I stopped and listened to your story and I started up the car and I went back home. Mm. Oh, so thank you. You helped me to not drink today. And I thought, oh my God, it's like a fucking miracle. And if I hadn't had the fucking guts to say, let me tell you this ugly thing, maybe he would have drunk that day. I mean, I don't know. But I do know that the more we talk about our ugliness and the darkness, the more we give other people permission to go there and not to turn away from it. Americans are absolutely miserable at holding on to one more than one emotion at a time. <laughs> it's hard for us to love ourselves and to be disgusting. <laughs> Yeah, You know, it's hard for us to say, I'm really a good person, and I'm also a person with horrible thoughts. That's not just okay, that's absolutely human and beautiful. And I want to celebrate that. I want to see you there. Right. And when I connect the hyena story to the other story you told me about the really horrific BDSM scene... And how on the other side of the horror of that BDSM scene, you had the spiritual moment where you understood the history of trauma within, you know, enslavement and all that. Again, it's like you would not have reached that spiritual place if it wasn't for the crisis. Yes, yes. Not to say thank you to our perpetrators or say thank you to the struggle of alcoholism or any of that, but it's like... That's where you found that spiritual moment is on the other side of the ugliness. That's exactly true. And I have a type of a gratitude, not necessarily for the thing happening, but for the fact that I survived uh -huh. mm -hmm. and took that survival and elevated it to thriving. My life is unbelievable right now. The things that I'm doing with my life were never on my radar and they're unbelievable. They're fucking awesome. And those things are accessed through my submission, through my service to other people, through my having the gall to talk about my psychotic break as though it's a normal thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and to be open to those experiences. You know, I'm a fucking New Yorker. I don't want to talk to imaginary animals. I don't want to have religious experiences, but I do. And I keep having these inexplicable connections and breakthroughs and truly life-altering shifts as a result of my continued vulnerability. The more I say, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to say the thing. I'm just going to jump off the cliff. The more my higher power lets me know that that is my job, is to be as naked as possible, to say the shit that I feel like I don't want to say. Because that vulnerability, that openness, 
is something that I can do safely. I have been inured to shame and humiliation, like spending your whole life as an actor. There's not much we find humiliating, not right. fucking much. But that put me into a good place to say, okay, you know what? I can take that hit. And in exchange, what I get from my service is seeing that other people learn, grow, connect, associate, lose shame, gain self-esteem. If someone thinks that I'm pretty cool and then they find out that I'm a recovering alcoholic who almost drank themselves to death, who was living in abject poverty for decades – and now, you know, runs around the world with like one of the most famous living contemporary composers and writes operas and is going to star in an opera and is the subject of a documentary and has written a couple of books and is sought after for her speaking engagements and is respected as one of the foremost experts on alternative sexuality. I'd be like, what the fuck even is that? I just wanted to star in a sitcom and be famous. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Like, that was my goal. Like, can I get on a soap and just parlay that for the next 30 years? Right. Yeah. And you've just told us just this little snippet of your journey. And even this has been so rich. You know, I've watched some of your other storytelling about how you found your present partner. Yeah. And those stories are so amazing. <laughs> and that, that's something we can unpack in the next episode is, you know, I definitely want people to tell the story of how you met your partner and all of that, you know, because everything we've talked about in this episode, there's been a lot that's been super hard, but your journey in the last, I don't know, decade or so, maybe eight years or something like that has been pretty amazingly powerful in a positive and uplifting way. And across so many lines, there's the alternative sexuality, there's the sobriety, there's as a storyteller, as an African-American artist. There's so many circles overlapping in that Venn, you know, me standing in the middle of all those saying, yes, these are all my job. Uh -huh. Yeah. These are all my purpose for which I was put on this earth. This is what I'm doing right now. And I relish it because it's going to sound a bit cheesy, but one of the important things that I did take away from AA was one day at a time, and it sounds simple, and it's not, it's one of the hardest things to do, especially in a capitalist country, mm -hmm. in a capitalist society, to just say, you know what, I'm about today right now. And not that you're not worrying about the future, but you're not focused on it. That staying present, being in the present, taking care of your shit, and then moving on to the next thing was so helpful for me because... I was able to bring things down to a manageable level and say, okay, what do I need to do today? What do I need to do tonight? And sometimes it's moment by moment. What do I need to do in the next five minutes? And being able to scale that down was so magic for my staying sober. And I got sober. The last drink I had was March 12th, 2007. I count the 14th as my first day of sobriety, March 14th, 2007. And I have not had anything to drink, not a single nothing since then. And that was my first, quote unquote, shot at sobriety. And statistically, I'm quite a minority because for that to be the first time I got sober and to stay sober for more than five years on your first shot is, whoo, it's vanishingly small. But I'm very greedy and very protective of my sobriety. So I was like, once I do this, I don't like repetition. I don't like making the same mistake twice. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I want to stay out. I don't want to go back in and try to experiment with alcohol again. Thank you, no. Yeah. So I hate to do this, but I'm going to take from your one day at a time. Listeners, we're all going to have to take this one episode at a time. And I invite y'all. See, I'm good at these transitions. I really am. I invite you Work, 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 work. Exactly. Join us next time. If you haven't hit the subscribe button for Open Deeply, please be sure to do so so you don't miss our next episode with Melina. I will take that incredibly personally if you don't subscribe. Exactly. Listen to Mo. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to unpack this further. We're going to hear more about these happy endings. And Melina, thank you so much. Thank you. I love hearing your stories. And listeners, until then, join us back next episode where we once again dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.